0: What a blessing to uh, get them back there and get them taught. I want to look today at a woman in the Bible who radically changed her life with and through prayer. She's a desperate woman, she is culturally oppressed, and she's circumstantially challenged, uh, afflicted. So often when we are in this position in our life, uh, we... uh, we try to get, take control of it, and this lady here took control of the situation by handing over control to God. I want to look at First Samuel chapter one. If you're there, First Samuel. I told you to turn yet. If not, First uh, Samuel chapter one, uh, and we'll read out of the a couple of verses here in this chapter. First Samuel chapter one, verse number one. The Bible says, "Now there was a certain man." of Ramathah in Zophim, of the Mount Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives, and the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up out of his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice unto the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. When the time was that Elkanah offered, he gave to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters, portions. But unto Hannah he gave a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had shut up her womb. And her adversary also provoked her sore, for to make her fret, because the Lord had shut up her womb. And as he did so year by year, when he went up in the house of the Lord, so she provoked her, therefore she wept and did not eat. Then said Elkanah, her husband, to her Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? Am not I better to thee than seven sons?' So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. Now Eli the priest sat upon his seat by the post of the temple of the Lord and she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore. Father, I pray you'd help us in the next few minutes here as we look at this story, help us to find ourselves in it and apply it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Her name is Hannah. I want to look today at Hannah's sorrow. Hannah's response to the sorrow, Hannah's song, and then Hannah's savior. Hannah's sorrow is made pretty clear here in these verses that we read. She was the wife of Elkanah, and Elkanah had two wives. Now there is a recipe for disaster right there. A wife should be the crowning jewel of her husband. In her, he should invest his life, uh, his love, he should serve her, he should build her up, and uh, that's the type of uh, the type of uh, setting that would make for a good marriage. Bill's second anniversary was coming up. He wanted to do something special for the occasion. Uh, so he finally decided he's going to send his wife some flowers. Now, he didn't really trust himself to pick out the right ones, so he called the local flower shop. He gave them instructions to deliver the biggest bouquet they had to her- his address the next day. And he said, put the following note on it. Happy anniversary, year number two. And so the next day he waited. When the doorbell rang, he made sure that Susie was the one to open the door. And then he could hear all of a sudden a gasp, and she came into the room. She was furious, waving the note in the air and said, Happy anniversary, you're number two? No, she should be number one, amen? Common mistake. He should honor her as the queen of the home. Wives wilt under dominance and they flourish under tender loving care. Paul sets the ultimate standard in in Ephesians chapter 5 when he compares the marriage relationship with Christ and the church. The Bible demands that husbands love their wives as their own bodies. I guarantee if that happens, you're not going to have abuse. You're not going to have mistreatment. You're not going to have abandonment. A man is to love his wife in the tender, caring way that he loves his own body. A man automatically provides comfort for his own body. He'll wear steel-toed shoes. He'll wear a hard hat. Uh, He'll wear protective clothing. He'll listen to the signals that his body gives him that tells him when he should eat, when he should drink. Uh, We nourish our bodies. We cherish them. We care for them. A man does not ignore the needs of his body. And Paul said, just like you care for your body, the same a treatment should also apply to your wife. He should protect her, uh, strive to make her happy, play, pay close attention to the signals that she sends. Yes, I said the signals that she sends because no man is really married until he understands every word his wife is not saying. Amen, men? We understand that. He needs to develop, uh, help develop her potential. Nourish her and cherish her. She should be above all in his estimation. Now, they have this all figured out if you look at the wedding day. I don't know if you've been to many weddings. I've been to a few now, and I've uh, actually been involved personally in one, amen, where I was the groom. And the day of the wedding is all about the bride. Uh, It does not even really matter if the groom is there or not. Have you been to these weddings? The wedding is all about the bride. She is in a beautiful dress. It costs thousands of dollars. After the wedding, she will press it. She will put it in plastic. She'll hang it someplace special so for the the rest of her life, she can look at that dress and remember that special day. The man's outfit is rented. He has to have it back by Monday. So some other schmuck can get married in it next Saturday. You can tell the groom, hey, it doesn't matter if 25 men have been married in that suit. You're special. We see this on the wedding day. She's wearing a diamond ring. Diamonds are called woman's best friend. You know what man's best friend is? A dog. A woman's best friend is one of the rarest things on earth. A man's best friend is neutered so we don't have more of them. You understand? (laughs) At a wedding day, we understand that the woman is supreme. She comes up the aisle. I always found it interesting. We asked the question. In fact, I'll be doing it next Saturday at a wedding, but we ask the question when she comes up the aisle, who gives this woman to be with this man? Uh, we don't, the, the man's family is never consulted. You ever notice that? I guess they just assume he's lucky to have anyone, so he just stands there, take what you get, and we asked that question. But the, the bride is obviously the queen of the ball at the wedding. Now, a husband ought to keep her in this esteemed position. These are some of the things that we are to do as husbands if we're going to treat the wife the way God wants her treated. Now, considering all that, imagine the attack on her dignity when there's another woman added into the mix. He had two wives, the Bible said. Some people think that the Old Testament gives a stamp of approval on multiple wives. It never does. Some people think that because people like Abraham and, and uh, people like Jacob and all throughout the Bible, different men had, like Solomon had many, many wives. The Bible never puts a stamp of approval on having more than one wife. Uh, polygamy. In fact, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, the Bible says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife Wife, singular, and they shall be one flesh. Ephesians chapter 5 makes it even more clear, and they too shall be one flesh. Not they, three. Every single place in the Bible where we see a polygamous marriage, you see nothing but misery. Look at it in your Bible. You see problems. Anybody who believes the Bible supports uh, polygamous marriage is not paying attention. There's always jealousy, competition, scheming, distrust. We're talking about... Misery and Hannah had much sorrow, and one of the points of her sorrow was this fact right here in a marriage meant for two, there was three. There was a second reason for her sorrow. This is a day where people wanted children, they did not murder children in the womb, they wanted children. The Bible says in 127.3 of Psalms, it says, lo, children are an heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Hey, children in that day were a blessing. I'd say even today, children are a blessing, aren't they? Uh, They're an heritage of the Lord. The more children you had in those days, the better off you were economically. The more children, the were, the more children there were, the more people there were to work in the field and the more people there were to work in the shop or whatever your family did. So the more children that you had equals more money. The more children you had, the better your financial security. Uh, More likely uh, you were that if you lived to an old age, uh, there would be comfort, there would be security. Unless the women of any people group uh, would have many children, then sometimes a bigger nation or a bigger uh, society would come in and squash you or colonize you. So a, having lots of children in any people group were, uh, the better, was better for them militarily, uh, politically, all those things. So having children for Hannah in Hannah's day it was doing the best thing you could possibly do for your society and your family. Only problem was Hannah wasn't having children. She couldn't. Her womb was closed. Consequently, she was in great agony. One of the wives was bearing children, and one was not. Uh, so he, she was having lots of children, and that's not the worst of it. The Bible says that the wife who could bear the children was derisive and mocking to Hannah who could not have children. So every day she had to deal not only with the longing and the shame and the disappointment, but Peninnah, her rival, would, would constantly... Antagonize her. Now, bef- not, to, not to defend the behavior of Penina at all, but I'd like to look at her just a moment. Remember, she's the unloved one. She's the one that knew Hannah was Elkanah's favorite. The Bible's clear that Elkanah loved her more. Hannah was his true love. Now, in her culture, a woman's worth is not only found in marrying well, <coughs> but as I mentioned, in producing children. And here was, here was Penina. She had fulfilled her end of the bargain. It's easy to see why she might feel that she should be the most favored wife of Elkanah. She's done everything she should do, and yet he loves her more than Panina. I'm sure she feels slighted. Maybe she's like Leah. You remember the story we had about Leah a few weeks ago, and Leah constantly trying to have children to please her husband and trying to make him love her, and she could not make him love her. Can you understand the pain and the frustration? Remember this, folks. Hurting people hurt people. And that was Penina. She was hurting. She's not innocent in this, but that's why this whole idea of polygamy was such a disaster. There was pain. There was frustration. There was jealousy. And so she hurt Hannah. Maybe that's why Jesus tells us in Matthew 5.44, Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. Hurting people hurt people. How ironic that both of these women had what the other woman wanted. Uh, Panina desperately wanted Alcana's love. She had children but desperately wanted Alcana's love. Hannah desperately wanted children and she's the one that had Alcana's love. It's easy to look at someone else's life and think that they have everything figured out. Their life is perfect. Meanwhile, somebody's looking at you and thinking the same thing. We never know. Everybody has their struggles, and we don't know what's going on in the heart of other people. Hurting people hurt people. There was no really any happy people in this story, because you have, again, a marriage that's unbiblical, and there's misery all over it. Panina handled it very badly. She let her misery pour out in her verbal attacks on Hannah. Hey, Hannah, you want to go to the baby gap today? They're having a sale. Oh, that's right. You don't have children, do you? She had to listen to this every day. There's not a day that went by that Hannah was not faced with her barrenness. And we see the pleasure, she had to see, the pleasure that Panina had every night and playing with her children. And she would obviously have this with Elkanah as well, and she could see Elkanah's joy in his children, and then you'd have that sideways smirk from Panina to Hannah. This added misery upon misery in Hannah's life. In verse 10, when the Bible tells us she wept sore, this means she cried aloud. That word literally means to weep in grief and humiliation. She was a woman in great sorrow, this woman Hannah. It looks like her response, Hannah's response. Actually, I first want to look at what she does not do, and then look at what she does. Because in Hannah's life right now, there's two voices talking to her. We've already kind of looked at the voice of Panina. Uh, she's, she's, in verse 6, provoking her sore. She's trying to get a response out of her. Panina's voice represents the culture. Uh, The pressure from not measuring up. Hey, Hannah, every woman I know has a child but you. You are a reject of society. And that's what Hannah no doubt felt like. But there's a second voice. It's the voice of her husband. He says, honey, Hannah, why weepest thou? And why eatest thou not? And why is thy heart grieved? And am I not better to thee than ten sons? Isn't that just like a man? (laughs) That verse cracks me up here he is he sees her weeping she's crying and crying and crying and he says because because men are 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 sensitive like this right so he's saying man she's crying i got to do something to make her feel better i got it hannah why are you crying you got me i mean hearing that probably oh just make it worse But that's what he gave. You got me. Actually, what he's doing here, I think, is a reference back to an earlier verse, verse 5. He's referring to the fact that Hannah, listen, she's got children, but you're my true love. I love you. He gave Hannah a worthy portion, for he loved Hannah. By the way, this is the horror of polygamy again. It's a terrible thing. And he's saying, look, she's having children, but you're my true love. And both voices are saying to Hannah, hey, Hannah, this is how you can be fulfilled. One of them is like the voice of culture, Panina. You have to have children or you're not going to be fulfilled. You have to fit in with the rest of us or you're not going to be fulfilled. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have Elkanah. And he's saying that you depend on your husband's love and you depend on the people around you and then you'll be fulfilled. These are two voices that she's hearing. And it's interesting to me, she doesn't answer either one of them. She does not build her life her hopes and her dreams on the cultural ideal, nor on her husband's affection. Look what she does. Verse number nine. So Hannah rose up after they had eaten in Shiloh and after they had drunk. All of a sudden, Hannah decides, I'm going to stop being passive and I'm going to do something about it. She comes up with a decisive action. She's basically saying, No longer, and I'm just going to let life happen to me no more. Will I? Going to, will I sit around weeping? I'm going to take charge. I'm going to do something drastic. And the drastic thing she did is to pray. In her torment, Hannah prays. Look at verse number 11. She makes a vow. She vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou will indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but wilt give thine handmaid a man-child, Then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. Now, what's going on here? Is Hannah making a deal with God? We hear people say you shouldn't make deals with God like this. Is Hannah making a deal with God? Well, I don't believe that's what's happening because what happens next would not happen if Hannah was making a deal with God. Look what happens next, verse 18. And she said, Let then handmaid find grace in thy sight, So the woman went her way and did eat, and her countenance was no more sad. If she had been making a deal with God, this is the order of things. You would have prayer, pregnancy, the request she's making, the deal she's making, and then peace. But that's not what happened in the Bible. In the Bible, the direction of events, this is the order, by the way, that has to be the order if you're making a deal with God. The request the payoff, and then the gratefulness. That's the deal. But Hannah did not have that. She had prayer and then peace. Isn't that interesting? Look at what the Bible says here. Before her prayer was answered, her countenance was no more sad. By the way, that means there was an end of it there. She stopped being sad. She prayed this prayer And before God answers it, she has no idea whether or not God will give her what she asked for, but she's at peace anyway. Let me ask you a question today, friend. Do you need God to answer your prayers in order for you to have a good attitude? Sometimes. You know the most effective prayer is the one in which we're okay with either answer? Yes or no? That's the most effective prayer. That's a difficult one because typically... We know the prayer, the answer we want to the prayer that we want. And so we don't want to leave it open to God. But let's dig just a little deeper here because there's a fascinating truth in this text. I want you to see. Uh, When she says, If thou wilt indeed look on the affliction of thine handmaid and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life. Now, to really understand, don't miss this a great truth here. If you understand what Hannah's doing here, let's take just a little step back and ask the question, why would a woman want a child in that day? We talked about it a little bit. I'll just give you a real quick three reasons. Number one, a woman would want a child to fit in. Man, it was culturally embarrassing not to have children. It was culturally a bad thing. So while children, every, every day they went to the marketplace, they'd take their children and the kids are playing with each other and the mothers are talking about the children and they're comparing notes, and, but Hannah has no children. Oh, it's a joy to have children. A wife invited some people to dinner at uh, the table. Had a whole, whole bunch of people over, big, big family, like when you invite the Yoders over, you know, had a big family over. And at dinner, she turned to her six-year-old daughter and says, why don't you pray and say the blessing? And she says, but mom, I don't know what to say. And she says, well, just pray what you've heard mommy pray. So she bows her head and says, Lord, why on earth did I invite all these people to dinner? Every day, kids are a blessing, aren't they? Every day Hannah went to the marketplace with the other woman, but she had no child. But listen to me now. Now if she has a child and she gives him to God, and he's not even with her, then this won't fulfill this desire. He's not going to be with her anyway. That's interesting. Uh, She still wouldn't fit in. Number two... Uh, In that day, you'd want a son to learn the trade of the family, to inherit the land, to continue your legacy. But again, if you give him to the Lord, you drop him off the temple when he's a couple years old, you don't have him with you, he can't inherit. He can't give you security for the future. Number three, you can't fail to mention just the richness of the joy of having a child. I'm talking about the hugs, the kisses, the hand-drawn cards, the snuggles. The emotional richness you have when you walk in the door at the end of the day and a little child runs up and throws his or her little arms around you. There's a a richness in that. But if you give him to the Lord, you drop him off and he doesn't live with you, you might see him once a year. You don't get to enjoy this either. So what's happening here? I think if we paraphrase the prayer this way, it will help us to understand it. Lord, all of my life, I've always wanted to have a child for me. Now, I still want a child, but now I want to have the child for you. Did you see the difference in her prayer? There's a monumental paradigm shift going on here. Because if she were asking for a child for herself, then God's answer to that prayer would be everything. She would not go away glad yet until she saw whether the prayer was answered if it was for herself. But she decides that she's going to leave it up to God. Now she can say to God, it really doesn't matter to me how you answer the prayer, God. Either way is fine with me because he's your child. He's not my child. He's your child. And if you'd like for your child to be born, I'm fine with that too. Isn't that a neat thing? It's an entirely different way of thinking for her. She's basically saying here, I'm not putting my happiness in what my husband thinks of me as good as that is. I'm not resting my peace in societal expectations. She refused to put godlike power in flawed human beings. Why do we do that? Why do we rest our peace in people who will fail us? And they will. I can promise you, if you put your peace and happiness in me, you're going to be vastly disappointed, because I'll fail you. Your husband, your wife, the greatest relationship on earth, in my opinion, is a husband and wife. It's a blessing to have that. But we cannot put all of our hopes, our fulfillment, our desires in one another. We cannot give a place that belongs to God to a person who will fail you. And Hannah came to that point. I'm turning my will over to God. I want all that God does in my life, I want it to glorify Him. This set her free. The verse we heard earlier during the song service. You know the freedom in casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. There's freedom in that. Hannah recognized it. Then look at her song. Beginning of chapter 2, we have Hannah's song. Samuel has been born to her, true to her word. She brings him to the house of the Lord. At the end of chapter 1, she takes her son to Eli. She hands him over to the Lord. Oh, you, 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 we think about that scene, and we think that must have been so hard for her. And I'm sure it wasn't easy, but remember, my friend, she didn't give her son to the, to the Lord when he was very little. She gave her son to the Lord all the way back when she was at the altar. She said, if he's born, he's yours, God. He's yours. In chapter 2, she sings a wonderful song. We know it is Hannah's song. Or, uh, it, it, we, we have some lessons in there that we can learn. In that song, we see a pattern and a person. The pattern and the person explain to us how she had the power to do what she did. We see the pattern here uh, in verses 4 and 5. The bows of mighty men are broken, and they that stumbled are girded with strength. They that are full have hired out themselves for bread. This is verse 5 of, of chapter 2. And they that are hungry cease, so that the barren hath borne seven, and she that hath many children is waxed feeble. The pattern here, the strong are weak, and the weak are strong. The filled are empty, and the empty empty are filled. The barren are fertile, and the fertile are barren. Then in verse 8, he raiseth up the poor out of the dust, and lifted up the beggar from the dunghill, to set them among princes, and make them inherit the throne of glory. She saw how God worked not through strength, but through weakness. He does not work through wealth, but through poverty. Furthermore, Hannah can say, honestly, if I had not experienced these sorrows, if I had not experienced these setbacks, this rejection, I would never have discovered this freedom. Oh, listen, friend, there's purpose in hardship. There's purpose in it. God has reasons behind it. She saw the truth in the way God works. God works through the excluded. He works through the weak. He works through the poor. He seems to do His best work in weakness and in suffering and in difficulty. That's the pattern, but it doesn't work without the person. And in the person we see Hannah's Savior. Verse 10, the Bible says, Out of heaven shall He thunder upon them. The Lord shall judge the ends of the earth, and He shall give strength unto His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Now who's Hannah talking about here? When she talks about the anointed, there's no king in Israel at this time. Uh, well, if you look at the original word for his anointed, it's Mashiach is the original Hebrew word. It means the Messiah. I believe under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, she uh, I believe she's seeing ahead to the Messiah. By the way, doesn't this sound familiar? Because centuries later, another young girl who is unexpectedly pregnant by the power of God also sang sang a song, and this is what she said. He hath put down the mighty from their seats, hath exalted them of low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich hath he sent away empty. The young lady was Mary, the mother of Jesus. Mary has just discovered she's pregnant with the Savior of the world, and she sings about it in Luke chapter 1. It seems to me like she bases her song on Hannah's song because it's much says the same thing. And why is that? Because Jesus Christ embodies the salvation that Hannah experienced. When Jesus Christ, the Son of God, comes, he's born in a manger. The foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, he said, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He comes as a poor man. He's despised and rejected. He's arrested and beaten, and he's put to death. He, the anointed king goes to a cross, not to a throne. He humbled himself into the weakness of a servant. If Jesus would have done what he did in strength, if we would have showed his power, he could have said to everyone, be like me. Uh, Do what I do. You can be saved if you're like me. Be strong. Then only strong people could get saved. But salvation is not based on accomplishment. It's not based on strength. It's not based on how many children you have or how much your husband likes you. Hannah found this out. She saw that the Lord is telling her uh, to the lonely, He says, I'm your husband. To the poor, He says, I'm your wealth. To the moral failures, which is every single one of us, He says, I'm your righteousness. And I'd like to encourage you today, dear friend, if you've been struggling with the pressures of fitting into society or the burden of family acceptance or any overwhelming circumstances in your life, do not depend on earthly things to provide your fulfillment, find your identity in God. That's what Hannah did. Psalm thirty four ten: They that seek the Lord shall not want any good thing. Uh, Isaiah twenty six three: Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on Thee. Second Corinthians twelve nine: And he said, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Aren't you grateful that we have a, a Lord in Jesus Christ? that will use and accept weak people like me. If you want to restructure your heart and remove those pressures that we feel uh, from the world today, turn your focus away from your own desire for fulfillment, like Hannah did. She took the focus away of what she wanted, and she said, rather, God, whatever you give me, it's yours. And you know what God did? God did for Hannah... What he'll do for you? God basically said, okay, Hannah, you got it. And what he did, he sent her a son, Samuel. Got great prophet that he grew up to be. And then, like God always does, he didn't only give her Samuel, he gave her more kids to follow. Gave her several girls, gave her some more boys, and then uh, she was able to have the family that she so desperately wanted. But it took Hannah to come to a point, saying, really, ultimately, God, what you give me is not mine after all, it's yours have to live like that we cannot put our our hopes and our all of our fulfillment in something earthly we do that it's going to fail us we put it in god and he'll bless it let's have every head